everyone. Welcome to this edition of the BreastCancer.org podcast. I'm Jamie DiPolo, the senior editor here at BreastCancer.org, and I'm very excited to have to talk to our guest today, who is Dr. Alan Stolier, who is a surgeon at the Center for Restorative Breast Surgery in New Orleans. He has more than 35 years of experience in surgical oncology. Dr. Stolier specializes in the surgical treatment of breast cancer and is a pioneer in the development of nipple-sparing mastectomy. Dr. Stolier also focuses on breast cancer genetics and the associated care of women who have an abnormal BRCA gene. He is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and is a member of numerous professional societies, including the American Society of Breast Surgeons. Dr. Stolier, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me, Jenny. We're very excited. Uh, we're focusing on genetics in this month, and uh, many of our visitors always have a lot of questions about genetics. So to start with, if a woman knows she's at high risk for breast cancer, uh, whether she has a family history of the disease or if she has a genetic mutation, there are many options she has. She can have prophylactic or as we also call it, preventive mastectomy and oophrectomy, which is the removal of the ovaries. Um, can you help us understand what's involved with each of those surgeries and how much each one can reduce risk potentially? Right. So let me start off in the area that I know the least about. Okay. But feel relatively comfortable talking about it, which is um, removal of the ovaries and tubes for to reduce the risk of ovarian cancer. Okay. Um, um, the removal of the ovaries and tubes is actually a rather generally easier operation than it was several decades ago. And why is um, that? Now it can be done many times using laparoscopic techniques with or without robotics. Okay. Um, but there's, a, there's a, a very important part here. And the important part is that removal of the ovaries alone is probably not sufficient to reduce risk. Uh, in the last decade or so, we have we've begun to realize that many of the cancers that we called ovarian cancer um, were, in fact, cancers that ar arose in the fallopian tubes or the tube that goes from the ovaries to the uterus. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, it's really critically important that when a cancer when someone is having preventative surgery or risk reduction surgery, as it's many times called, that both the tube and the ovaries be removed on each side. Okay. So the risk reduction, when one does these procedures, is said to be somewhere between 80 and 90%. Um, so it doesn't totally eliminate the risk of ovarian or tubal cancers, but clearly reduces risk rather substantially and probably uh, is the, the most effective way to reduce risk uh, for ovarian cancer. Does uh, removing yeah. the tubes and the ovaries reduce breast cancer risk at all? It does indeed, which, which is the interesting part. It, um, removal of the tubes and the ovaries uh, obviously cuts cuts down on estrogen levels 
Uh, it doesn't completely eliminate them, but it does cut them back substantially. And there is said to be about a 50% reduction in breast cancer risk just from reducing, just from removing the tubes and the ovaries. The information we don't have, however, is what happens when, if we remove the tubes and the ovaries and we then replace hormones that we've just taken away? Um, I, I would suspect that it's still a considerable reduction in risk because we don't have to replace it depends on which hormones we're replacing but if we're replacing exactly the same hormones that we took away then we may not be reducing risk so it just depends on what's done and whether or not um the hormones that we replace are exactly the ones that we took away with the um with the tubes in the tubes in the ovaries being removed and when you uh, say replace the hormones, I assume you're talking about um, taking a woman who would take hormone replacement therapy or It is. It, and it's a big difference, however, because if a woman has her tubes and her ovaries removed, she still, in many instances, has her uterus still intact. And if we just replace estrogen, one of the two major female hormones being the two being estrogen and progesterone, If we just replace estrogen, we know now for decades of work and studies that this will increase the risk of uterine cancer. And so in order to bypass that risk, to eliminate that risk, we generally would give her estrogen and progesterone. And it's the estrogen and progesterone in the Women's Health Initiative studies, uh, the Women's Health Organization studies that have shown an increased risk of breast cancer. So I think right now it really depends on whether women have their uterus removed at the same time they have their tubes and ovaries removed. And I don't think that there's there's an absolute recommendation for this to be done, but to the the way that I think about it is, is it may be highly beneficial to have the uterus removed, not because it reduces the risk of cancer, but it allows you to take estrogen alone and not estrogen and progesterone, which may, which may be a safer alternative. Okay. Okay. If that makes any sense. Yeah. So. No, no, that does. It does make sense. Uh, so, so the, the, the procedures themselves are much, much easier on a woman than they were many, many years ago when they you had big cuts made and recoveries were took took a good long time. What's the average recovery now? I mean, I, I know we'll get into a little more details later in the as we talk, but since you brought it up, um, what's an average recovery time now uh, if someone were to have, um, say, tubes and ovaries removed and then tubes, ovaries, and uterus removed? Is there a difference or is it pretty much all the same? I'm- I can't. I can't speak with any great authority since it's not a procedure that I do. But I would think that if it's done laparoscopically or using robotics with laparoscopic approach through small openings made in the abdomen, uh, that it t- probably takes a bit longer when you have the uterus removed okay. than when you just have the tubes and the ovaries removed. Okay. But I would imagine that that difference is becoming more narrow each day as the techniques get better and better. Okay. 
So I think recovery is clearly much, much quicker than it was a few decades ago with open procedures. Okay. Okay. And then what about uh, preventive mastectomy or risk-reducing mastectomy? Well, that's that's a, a different situation. So if we first look at risk reduction, mm-hmm. uh, it appears the first thing we talked about was when we remove the ovaries, we reduce the risk of breast cancer. So it depends if we if we want to look at the risk reduction from doing risk reduction mastectomies or preventative mastectomies, then the risk reduction is probably in the ninety to ninety five percent range. Uh, we don't we don't have you know the the people the women who are get, are getting these these problems and these surgeries and developing breast cancer many times are women in their thirties and forties. And because they're in their 30s and 40s, the number of years left in their life is quite, is quite substantial. It might be 40 years. And we have no 40-year data to know what the actual reduction in risk is. Our estimate right now is 90 to 95% risk reduction, 95% being more for women that have had their ovaries removed. Okay. And And... 90% or so being for women that still have their ovaries and tubes. Um, and, and it's very hard to say, but if you just look at some very simple numbers, so when we tell a woman that her risk has been reduced by 95%, it's it's hard for people to understand exactly what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So it's if you're talking to me, say, well, what does that mean? What does a 95% reduction mean? And if you do it in a very oversimplified form and you look at 100 women who have a BRCA gene mutation, right? Because mm-hmm. we know we all have the gene. Right. It's the mutation in the gene that is, is the issue. And we all have some form of deleterious mutation in our genes Then we know that at least 80 out of 100 women will probably in their lifetime – develop, and I'm, I'm trying to round off sure. to make it easy, mm-hmm. will develop breast cancer. And if we reduce their risk by 90%, that means that it, that 72 will not get the disease. Mm-hmm. Okay, eight times nine. Sure. So 72 will not get the disease. So that means that eight will. Right. So eight out of 100 is lower than the probable 12 out of 100 or so that is the the risk uh, that, that is said to exist for women, nor, uh, women who are otherwise normal. Right, the average risk. The, yeah, and so we've reduced it, but 8 out of 100 for 90% reduction in risk and about 4 out of 100 for, for a 95% reduction in risk. It's still at least – it's a tremendous risk reduction, mm-hmm. but it's not 100%. And it's really important that we as surgeons who talk about these procedures realize that this, this, that women still can get cancer. This is, however, the biggest reduction in risk that we have today. Okay. Of, of all of our options, this is the big one. Mm-hmm. And is preventive mastectomy surgery, has that 
come along the same way that preventive ovary removal have? Is is recovery time shorter now? Are there new techniques? All those kinds of things. I don't. I don't think. I think in some ways, in in a in a kind of a strange way, recovery is probably a little longer. Only in that, in as I said, in kind of a strange way. (laughs) And the reason it's strange is because years ago, when we did preventative mastectomies, we did not do reconstruction. And so reconstruction, so mastectomy, recovering from just a mastectomy is rather quick. I mean, two, three weeks, you're getting pretty much getting back to your old self. But when we added reconstruction, depending on the type of reconstruction we've added, it prolongs it prolongs the recovery time. Okay. And now you may be talking about four to eight weeks to really not not so that you can you can walk around, mm-hmm. but that you feel like your your old self again. Okay. So that for for only that reason is because of the tremendous strides in reconstruction, as the time to recovery gotten actually a little bit longer. Okay. And um, I'm curious too: is there a difference in the decrease of in risk depending on the type of genetic mutation a woman has? So, for example, say I have a, a BRCA1 mutation. I have preventive mastectomy. Somebody else has a BRCA2 mutation and has preventive mastectomy. Is it, for both of us, is it between 90 and 95% or is it different depending on the mutation? Well, it, it, it seems the best, best we can tell right now, it's about the same. Okay. Okay, it's about the same. It's the age in which you develop it is a little bit different. And there are likely certain mutations that affect affect your um, development of breast cancer more than others. But we haven't kind of teased those out yet. You know, hundreds and hundreds of different mutations have been described, but we haven't teased out which ones may be be causing women to develop their breast cancer at an earlier stage or higher risk. Some might be 98% and some might be 70 or 50%. Okay. But we haven't teased those out. We've just looked at them kind of more as a group okay. of women. But, so it's about the same. Okay. The risk is about the same. The risk reduction seems to be about the same. Okay. Now, is there a woman in your mind who benefits most from preventive surgery? Well, I, I think that the younger women tend to have more benefit. Okay. And clearly the reason that they have more benefit is they have more years of risk. Um, for instance, if you say, well, what is the risk of a woman developing breast cancer who finds out that she is carrying a breast cancer gene mutation at age 20? Mm-hmm. Her risk is a certain amount. It might be 80%. It might be a little less. But now take someone who just finds out and they're 55 years old. Mm-hmm. Well, they have a much shorter time. Okay, so their risk is less. Mm-hmm. They've already used up some of their risk years, as we say. Sure. So it's, it's younger women who tend to do, who tend to get the most benefit. Okay. 
because their risk is higher. Okay. Now, are there any women who, in your minds, shouldn't consider preventive surgery? Sure, there are. There are some some women that have enough, in medicine we call them comorbidities, but essentially other illnesses that can interfere with their with their life. Um, they may have significant heart disease. Uh, they may have uh, significant kidney disease. Maybe they might in the future require a kidney transplant. There, there are many other. If if, if a woman has enough enough of of other types of illnesses that might impact their longevity, we may in fact decide that doing preventative or risk reduction surgery is not valuable to her. Women who are at a certain age is different in each each situation because some some women who are 65 years old have a lot of other problems going on and some that are 65 years old look better and are physically better off than somebody who who's 40 years old. Mm-hmm. So it it depends on the circumstance. But I think as as women age, we get a little bit more reluctant to make to, a major recommendation that they have risk reduction surgery. Sure. But it's a case-by-case situation. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I'm curious, too, do you require a woman to have genetic testing before doing preventive surgery? In, or is a strong family history enough of a reason? Well, it's kind of a complicated question and probably the answer is complicated, but it's, it's the bottom line is no, we don't require it. Um, Many women who have family histories that would bring you to your knees uh, test negative for the breast cancer gene. Mm -hmm. And very early on in the process of genetic testing, which I began back at some time in the late 90s, I was told something by um, one of the members of the company at that time that was the only company doing genetic testing, and I've kind of held on to it all of these years, and that is that family history trumps genetic testing. Interesting. We don't know every single gene. We don't know every single gene interaction or the multitude of genes that go into uh, affecting the risk or or the hereditary risk of a woman. Uh, we know the biggies. We know the BRCA genes, and we know others. But there are some gene interactions. There are things that can affect the functioning of genes, whereas we don't see a mutation. That gene is not functioning uh, at full tilt. And we, right now, since we can't identify them, we need to look at family history just as much as we look at the results of the gene test. So, no, we, at the bottom line, we don't require it. We're careful. We're certainly much more careful in women who do not have or have not been tested, we would we would encourage them to test for many different reasons okay. uh, because many times they are assessing their risk as, as tremendously high 
And at the end of the day, once they get their gene test back, they all of a sudden find out that their risk is the same as any other normal woman walking around the street. Okay. So we, we encourage it, but it's not mandatory. Okay. And kind of going back to when we were talking about the differences in risk, um, does the type of risk-reducing surgery you might recommend, does that vary based on the type, the type of mutation a woman has? No, it no, doesn't. No. Okay. Um, we do essentially the same procedure, whether you carry a mutation in the BRCA gene, BRCA1 versus BRCA2 versus some of the other genes that we're becoming more familiar with now. Okay. Uh, so it's exactly the same because the risk seems to be about the same. Okay. Okay. And also, too, I know this is a question I've seen a lot on our discussion boards. Is there an optimal age for protective surgery? Um, I know you talked about a younger woman finding out she has a genetic mutation, and she obviously has a lot more years ahead of her than someone who's 50 or 60. Um, But is there an optimal age to actually have the surgery done? Well... That is that is a really tough question. So I'm going to answer the part of the question that I we have kind of an answer for and a recommendation for. Okay. And let me just start off talking about tubes and ovaries because that there's been a recommendation uh, by several organizations, uh, and that recommendation is for a woman to have her tubes and ovaries removed somewhere between the age of 35 and 40 or earlier if she's completed her family in an earlier stage. There's a little bit of a nuance here, though. This is when the the different BRCA genes come into play. Okay. Um, The BRCA2 gene, women with BRCA2, number one, have a lower risk of ovarian cancer to begin with. Their risk is somewhere in the 25% range compared to a near 45 to 50% for BRCA1 patient. Most importantly, women with a BRCA2 mutation tend to develop their ovarian cancer at a later age, about 8 to 10 years later than the average BRCA1 patient. And therefore, they have tweaked the recommendation for a woman with a BRCA2 mutation to have her tubes and ovaries removed somewhere around 40 to 45 years old, as opposed to 35 to 40. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that all ovarian cancers occur after that time. It doesn't. It might mean the average ovarian cancer might occur at 50, but it doesn't mean that all of them do, because some might occur in the 20s. So it's, it's almost impossible to to figure this out so that you, you, when you make a recommendation, it applies to every single person. Because if you have some younger, younger women in your family that had ovarian cancer at a very, at much younger age, then I think that has to impact your decision as to when to have your own ovaries removed. Okay. Breast cancer, whole different ballgame. No strong recommendations. For us, we see a fair number of mutation patients, and we, most of our patients are in their 30s and 40s when they undergo prophylactic surgery. 
but there is not a strong recommendation as to as to when one might proceed with this. Some say that you should use members of your family as to in, in when they develop cancer themselves. For instance, if you have fair number of women in your family that have had breast cancer and they were all in their 40s and 50s, then you should be thinking of that, of your mastectomy, about 10 years before before the youngest one developed breast cancer. So if if the youngest one was 45, you might consider 35 to 40 is is a good time. But it's not a perfect world. And Many of the cancers that people develop because they have a mutation are developed by chance. And we still don't have a good, a good hold on timing for mastectomies, prophylactic mastectomies. Many times it's when women have first found out that they carry the gene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's usually the, the time that they're most, uh, they're most concerned. Okay. Do people... Um, usually decide to have one surgery before the other, or does that not matter? It it probably does matter. We remember our first right in the beginning of our conversation, we noted that that removing the ovaries reduces the risk of breast cancer. Right. So I would say that it has several things. Number one, if you are if if you're totally free to make a decision without a lot of other outside factors, then it would be nice to have the ovaries and tubes removed first. However, it's not the way things generally because there are there are more breast cancers than there are ovarian cancers. And so many times the process of thinking about what to do is interrupted by developing a cancer. And if a woman develops a breast cancer, then obviously the removal of the ovaries and tubes will be put off until after she has completed her entire treatment. And that treatment might include other chemotherapy or, or, or you know, surgery. Um, so so it, it's variable. But if you have your choice and the age at which the women in your family have developed their cancers are very similar, then removal of the ovaries first makes sense. If there is no ovarian cancer in your family but tons of breast cancer, then maybe removing the breast makes more sense. Okay. So very individualized as okay. to which way you go. Okay. Uh, we've been talking with Dr. Ellen Stolier at the Center for Restorative Breast Surgery in New Orleans. This is part one of a two-part podcast. Dr. Stolier, thank you so much, and I can't wait for part two. 